Podcast, logical and convincing, a deep dive into the standards and rules we live by in today's society. I'm your host, Akil Bechtimba, and my co-host is Sia Parker. Today's topic, it's not drama, it's trauma. This episode is about the relationship between people of color and seeking mental health services. What are their experiences and how they cope with their lives? So, um... Like always, we looked this uh, up in the Urban Dictionary to um, kind of look at what traumatic we couldn't trauma didn't really line up with the show topic, but we looked up traumatic and it defined um, something being traumatic as emotionally disturbing or distressing relating to a a cause or psychological trauma and drama. uh, It described as a way of relating to the world in which a person overreacts to or greatly exaggerates the importance of benign events. So um, this topic is super important because it's going to touch on mental health, like you stated, and on um, people of color, especially black people's relationship to uh, mental health issues. And so um, we're not experts, right? Right. On this topic. Definitely not. I sometimes I think I am. So, um, so so we had to bring in an expert, a guest today, and so we're so happy um, to have um, Amari Sims. Uh, she is a uh, she has a master's degree in marriage, family, child therapy, and clinical counseling, and she's certified in cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, and. Um, she has over 10 years of experience in mental health, um, consisting of, I don't know if I'm even going to be able to pronounce this, as psychopharmacological research. Did I do okay? Yeah, I hope. Community. Drugs. <laughs> right, right, right. All right. Community mental health, vocational counseling, and she has her own private practice. Uh, she specializes in treating anxiety, depression, interpersonal relationship issues, communication skills, and uh, phases of life issues. So she's also uh, um, associated with the National Association of Professional Women, uh, the NAPW, and the CAMFT. So really accomplished. Uh, I, I hope we get a lot out of kind of learning from our misconceptions about maybe when or when we did not need mental health and when we should bring a professional in to try to help us with uh, what we're experiencing in life. So let's talk about trauma and drama. Um, So I guess, you know, for us, we're going to kind of describe our own experiences, kind of. I don't think we can get, I don't think we have enough time to get to how deep it might be. But we're going to talk about our our own experiences, and then we'll we'll ask uh, the professional to kind of tell us, uh, you know, maybe where we might have gone wrong. Uh, (laughs) Akio, what would you describe as a trauma that people of color or you carry with you? 
Well, first of all, I want to make sure that this session is pro bono because I'm sure that uh, Amari's fees are. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, so, so um, I guess you know um, what would I describe as trauma for people of color? Um, I, I mean, there, there's it's it it's it's almost in the DNA. I think um, I think that you know uh, whether we have um, personally experienced something uh, traumatic or not, um, you know, kind of being us is, you know, in, in this country particularly, um, has, has, has its own traumas. Um, you know, um, James Baldwin said something about, you know, to be a black man in America is to live with rage. And, you know, and so, it, so I think that kind of just generally just to get us kind of kicked off in the, in, you know, we just talking about, people of color, black, brown, um, you know, red, however, you know, you want to say it, but anybody who has been here um, indigenously or otherwise, but are here as people of color experience, um, you know, trauma from white supremacy, trauma from uh, just day-to-day living. So I think that that's, you know, that's kind of a basis for it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that, uh, You know, I think people oftentimes struggle with realizing that they've generationally probably carried trauma from one group to another, you know, based on um, your parents' experience, your grandparents raised your parents and and put their experiences on their parents, your parents, and it kind of just keeps passing down generationally and with people of color because, a lot of times our experience here in we're we only going to speak on America, although we could go probably beyond that. Absolutely. I think it, it definitely um, is impacted by uh, the fact that a lot of times we're not really seen as uh, on the inside, right? We're always seen kind of on the out, outside. And so we carry with that each day uh, a, a reality, right? That we, um, that is coupled with whatever our experience has been at home. And that's a generational type of sometimes curse. I think it's so, funny. Uh, I think it's interesting that you said that because our whole topic about um, trauma versus drama, right? Um, you know, I think that when we, when we talk about trauma and I, and I, you know, and I kind of went around the surface with kind of the general uh, experience for us. But when I think about um, you know, my own. And I think about, you know, when, when anybody reacts, when we generally react, um, to a situation that has either happened to us or we are, uh, presently in, it's looked very often as drama, right? Oh my gosh. So dramatic. I even find myself having to, you know, I have two daughters and one is 16 and one is 10. And I have to catch myself almost every single day from calling them dramatic, right? For from from taking whatever they're going through or whatever they're feeling at that moment. And sometimes it is super dramatic. And it to me, it seems like such a small thing, but I have to catch myself because, you know, it could be something real to them. And, you know, to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, here comes the drama. Right. So so I think that it, you know, it, it's it's, you know, it's not just obviously externally that comes outside. And I think you talked about it or start talking about the generational pieces, but we definitely have um, you know, we have trauma that comes from inside our inside our homes and, you know, as we've as we've grown as well. 
So just to get a little more personal, right? Because obviously we have the expert here, so we need to get a little little more deep, right? On okay. our own personal uh, experiences, just get a little bit more personal. Is there something in particular that sticks out to you, right? Uh, maybe something that you experienced that you've carried with you um, into your adulthood and um, we're kind of going to deep, you know, dive into what that might look like. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I guess, and we're going deep, um, but I would probably say one of the most, <laughs> one of the most uh, I, I guess in my, in my long memory and I'm 47 right now. So this is way, 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 way back, but still, I guess that's, I guess that's also the, you know, kind of thing about trauma. Um, I remember um, seeing domestic abuse in my own household as a very young, like I'm talking four years old, maybe. Um, and I still like, although, although, you know, I can't remember all the details of why and all that kind of stuff, but I can, I can still remember what happened and see almost visually if I close my eyes to this day, you know, 43 years later can still see that moment when it happened. And, um, and so that's, that's, you know, that's one, uh, and that's probably one of the most substantial, um, that I can think of, but I can also, you know, even outside of the home, when I was 13 years old, the, I lived in a small town in Bay area and the bank got robbed and the police were on a hunt throughout the, throughout the town. And I'm 13 years old, basketball shorts with a basketball in my hand. Um, I think I was wearing a black LA Kings baseball cap. If I remember, um, walking from my uncle's house to my, to our home. And I got surrounded by like five police cars, guns drawn, um, thrown on the top of the car, you know, um, checked the whole thing because the description was black male, black baseball cat. I was 13 years old. I had yeah. no tools on me. I'd had, you know, it was nothing, nothing at all um, at that moment that was um, suspicious about, you know, or, or would give them some inkling that I was potentially the one. Um, but it was, you know, that kind of environment and that kind of town. And, uh, you know, and I happen to be the one. So, so those are, those are a couple real experiences that I would, I would throw on the table if we were. So did you seek mental health services after either one of those events? No. And no. why not? Um, well, first of all, I mean, the, the, the one when I was four, you know, <laughs> it was one of those things that got, you know, kind of got brushed under the rug or, you know, it didn't necessarily, you know, what you saw wasn't really what you saw. And it was, you know, and it was, you know, and those kind of things. And it's never been, I don't think it's ever been talked about even since, you know, throughout the years. Um, but uh, the other one has been talked about, but no, I never received, never received or seeked. Didn't feel like I, I needed it because it didn't feel strange, a strange experience. Right. I mean, I knew I had other friends that had experiences like that with the police. I had cousins that I had experiences like that with the police. So it was almost, you know, it was almost like a kind of normal occurrence. So it didn't feel like it, like it required 
some kind of, you know, some kind of help or some kind of, um, you know. So did you discuss it with anyone? Did you discuss it with any, either oh, one yeah. of those events? Yeah. And I mean, who, the, was, who the, was that? The first one, um, you know, the, uh, I think I'm sure my mom and I have talked about it a million times. Um, cause she was the one that, you know, that was on the receiving end. And I think, uh, the other one, yeah, I talked to both my parents when I got home. Um, I've talked, you know, told that story to my kids, you know, um, but never, I, I never felt it to be a, I don't know. I, I, I recognize it as a traumatic, possibly a traumatic experience or an experience in my, but I, I've never really, never really looked at it. Like I needed some help around that particular thing. So did the, did the person that you talked about in the case with your mom, did, did she give you any advice with kind of your feelings or emotions or was she too deep in it for her to uh, recognize? Pretty deep in it. I think that, you know, she was really sorry that I saw it, you know, um, even more sorry that she was going through it, but really sorry that I, I saw it. Obviously, you know, parents, you know, we go through stuff and we don't necessarily want to expose our, our, our kids to see things, you know, especially things that, you know, happen between us and our spouses or us and our, you know, or whatever the world that we try and protect them from. And so, um, so I think that that was really it. I think it was more, you know, she was sorry that I, I saw, we've talked about it a million times, but um, that's in my memory bank that I know that, you know, is kind of part of, what makes me, but it did very much have, I think, an impact on um, my approach to conflict with women. And, you know, and so for, you know, my entire life, even, even at my most furious, I would say I've been, or most frustrated, um, that was never a consideration for me. So you also described a police incident, right? So mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you the same question. Do you, yeah. is there some kind of residual effects or something that you, you feel now after that incident when you were 13 years old? Every single time I drive, <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, that's one of, of, you know, um, at least two or three, maybe five, um, situations or interactions with police where I was really literally completely innocent you know, and, and not, you know, not, um, you know, I remember one time and this is, I was 18 or 19. So I was just graduated from high school and I was going out to my own car, this same city, um, same town, Benicia, California. Um, I was in the same city in the same town and I went, it's near Vallejo, right near the Vallejo, right near Vallejo. Do you, have you heard Arrest of Arrest the cops that harass the kids. There you go. No, just kidding. No, no. Focus, those, focus those efforts on Brianna. I'm just messing around. But yeah, it happens so often. Yeah, yeah, but I but I was literally walking out of my own home in the middle of the night to get something out of my own car in front of the house and got pulled and the police stopped as I was going into my car, had me on the curb, the whole thing in front of my own house um, because a gray car had a... I don't know. I had some Volkswagen or something at that Volkswagen Scirocco, I think was my first car. Anyways, it was, you know, a gray car that they had on their scanners that had been stolen. That's the only description, though. And I happened to have a gray car and I was blackmail going in my car 
to get something out of my car at like midnight and, you know, went through the whole thing. Honestly, sometimes I feel like the we got a report that something was stolen Mm -hmm. or cars in this parking lot, because I'm going to tell a story that's similar. Cars in this parking lot may have been stolen or broken into. I just think that's a general uh, racial profiling sometimes catch all that police use to basically you know, and I come from a legal background, so I'm I'm saying this full force out there, people, because I think that sometimes uh, police, you know, are having to have probable costs to, to, to stop you in, in cases. And so they are going to state those kind of things, because if you look historically at what could have happened in any neighborhood, of course, there could have been a stolen car. But how long ago, a month ago, two months ago, did you ever retrieve the car? Who knows? I mean, it could be a catch all for harassment. Well, it is. And it's, and it's the, you know, it's the believable one, obviously, just because of how things are set up. Um, but yeah, but, you know, going back to our, you know, I, I think that there, this topic that we're talking about is so much deeper than just kind of these, um, these experiences. So maybe you should give some of your own, Cece. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'll, t- I'll talk about um, um, a little bit. So I, I also came from a home with domestic violence. Um, my parents um, didn't always have the greatest relationship. And I saw also uh, incidences of domestic violence, and I'll say more than one. Um, my father's passed now, so he's, he's, he's not on this earth. But, um, and also, you know, I was very young very young. I think my father passed when I was 12. So most of the instances or incidences happened when I was probably around seven or eight. Also very vivid in my mind. Um, uh, My parents used to wait until we went upstairs to have their fights to try to, you know, think that we weren't going to recognize or hear it. But of course, you can, you know, when people are angry, they elevate their voices. And when somebody's hitting another individual, you also can hear that. And I don't think that ever leaves your mind. Um, I also think that uh, as a black female, I think sometimes, you know, our our experiences don't always we might it may not be happening just to us. We would be in the car with somebody else, a black male that gets harassed, but you're experiencing the same type of trauma. So I had a, a, um, I grew up in Orange County and I had a boyfriend who decided, him and I decided to go see a movie at the Irvine Spectrum. And after the movie, it was a late movie. I think we went to see like the 10 o'clock movie. After that, we decided to talk in the car Um, and we were in my own car in the parking lot. And so it was around 11, 30, 12, right, ish. And this police car came up and, you know, got, uh, in, you know, to the back of my car. I don't think I was in law school yet. I think I was in my master's program. And the only reason I'm going to say this is because I say to the cop something about me being educated, right? Um, but but the thing is, is that I did it because I wanted him to know that I knew my rights because he pulls my boyfriend out of the car he um, tells him that he that cars have been broken into or reports of cars being broken into in the parking lot. There were no other cars, by the way. There's probably like two cars in the parking lot. It was very late at night. And um, 
he asked me to get out of the car so that we'd be separated to see if I was okay. Although I wasn't, we weren't yelling. I wasn't showing any signs of distress. Um, and he, um, basically asked to search my boyfriend and I asked for his supervisor to come. And I, I told him that, um, he didn't have the right to search him. And obviously I'm sometimes not as smart as I think I am because I could have put us in a very dangerous situation by doing this, mm -hmm. but I, I definitely asked for the supervisor. I told him he didn't have the right to search him, search us. I had a law school book on the back of my seat, even though I was only in my master's program because I had been studying something in the master's program because it had to do with law. My master's also was political science and I had taken some. So he had saw, I saw him look in the back seat and he called his supervisor. And he had the supervisor come. Yeah. And I explained to the supervisor that was illegal and that I wasn't and that I was not driving. So he had no right to stop us. We were inside the car. So I explained to him that they that they didn't have the proper right to do what they did. There was no mm -hmm. suspicious activity. We were inside the car. We weren't outside the car, picking at the car, looking into the car. His supervisor was profusely apologetic. Cause he didn't know, like, is she a lawyer? Is she not a lawyer? Oh, what yeah. is happening here? And I just called his bluff. That could have been very, very unsafe. So I don't suggest that everybody just go be mouthy like I'm. Right. <laughs> I normally am. Right. But but I but I did do it in that situation. But to your point, I think I also um, feel like from both the domestic violence and some of the police activity that I've experienced and not necessarily, it doesn't actually, and I, I feel bad about saying it doesn't actually happen directly to me. Mm -hmm. So the police officers tend to be, I've had no, pretty positive interactions if it's just me, mm -hmm. but I do have an African-American son and I, and I am part of the African-American community. So mm -hmm. when I've been in groups or I've been at a football game or in that instance, when I'm with someone else, I've, I've experienced the trauma through what's happening with both of us in the same scenario. Um, so I can say for me, though, uh, you know, I asked you, well, who do you talk to? Who did you talk to after? I am a, um, a therapy lover. Like my my mom was like <laughs> have therapy do therapy. And I think my mom's first time she put me in therapy was when I was 12 years old, right after my dad oh, yeah. passed, mm -hmm. she put me in therapy. I was in therapy probably for a year and a half that time. Um, I ended up having my son and I wasn't very, I didn't think that I was going to be emotionally connected because I, I wasn't really, uh, at the time that I got pregnant, it wasn't a planned pregnancy and I wasn't super excited about being pregnant. So I wanted to make sure mentally I was ready. So I went to therapy then to try to get mentally ready for having a son and getting in touch with my emotions so that I could be a good mother. So I was aware. And because I had therapy young, I was aware that I probably needed it again because I was unprepared. So I did it again. And then I had I had been with somebody for a very, very long time and we broke up and we lived together and it was very stressful and traumatic for me. And I went back into therapy for three more years at that point. So mm. I always have sought professional help, but I think because my mom recognized very young that that was an avenue for us to explore and pushed us kind of there because she wasn't prepared to really deal with all the emotions we were having and the trauma from 
that relationship with my father that wasn't positive all the time, hmm. I ended up seeking mental health. So I think I'm an anomaly though, because I don't hear a lot of my friends saying, oh, I went to therapy when I was like right. 10 or 12, right? For for these things. But 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 that's how my mom dealt with it. Well, you know, the other thing though, um, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, is that that's, you know, the whole kind of, in our community, especially, um, you know, therapy is a luxury, right? Mm. So, you know, the majority, you know, I mean, unless they find, you know, unless we find, you know, and there are services that are available. There are things that cover therapy, that cover counseling and those kind of things, services that are available out there. But, um, you know, I think that more, uh, at, at least in my memory, um, you know, the people that went to therapy, especially the kids that I remember going to therapy, it was either something very, very extreme had happened or um, or they could afford it. And it was just something that their family did. Right. Therapy was like going, I go to baseball practice and then I got to go to my therapy and then I got to go to, you know, it's been mostly girls. I did pop up on them. I did do a drive by one time. Oh my there, gosh. Was, there was some extra cars and I'm that dad. Now, let, yeah, let's just keep it all the way a thousand. I, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, and it's funny because I have this big, um, like big diesel pickup truck, right? So it is, it's not sleek and, and quiet. It's like, you know, right? Like through the, through the, and I won't stop, but you know, you know, I came by, I'm the, is that your dad just passed by? Right. So, so I'm that anyways. So, so I'm, you know, but I, but I, we had this, yeah, very, yeah. Everybody knows my dad. Um, but you know, the, the point is that I had to have this conversation with them about hanging out just hanging out in the parking lot, you know, and I had to tell her, look, you know, bring them back to the house. You know, you guys can sit in our driveway. You can sit in the neighborhood out in front of the house. I don't do not be chilling. A bunch of black kids out here. And we live, I live in Georgia in Cobb County, which is notorious. You guys aren't going to just be sitting out in, and there's a, the restaurant closed, the parking lot is shut down. And you guys are just out there sitting like 10 deep out there in the in the parking lot. It is a recipe for you for some kind of harassment. Right. And you guys don't have to be doing anything wrong, but it's a recipe. And so so it's funny that you say that, you know, you bring that up because I literally have had and they're like, what are you you know, why are you tripping? Like, why is this a big deal? And I'm just telling them. Well, I mean, just like we're talking about. The trauma that you experience, you carry with you, it's yeah. a, it's an incident sometimes that occurs, right? And in the case of myself, I just said that I don't, I've never had bad experiences with cops by myself, right? right, right. And I, I've had people stop me and not even give me a ticket and say, this is just a warning, yeah. which is not usually normal, right? They'll say, oh, it's just a warning this time. Make sure you get your taillight fixed or, mm-hmm. oh, it's just a warning this time. And, my, and, and you know, my son who's been in the car with me when they've done that before is like, dude, you get off so easy. They just really like, go, oh, it's a warning, bye, you know? Mm-hmm. But the trauma comes when one of those instant, instant incidences become, I don't know why it's hard yeah. for me to say that word, but it becomes very, like in a split second, something goes wrong, right? right. Or something happens or you know you have the wrong cop that stops you or you have like you said 
a suspicious person driving across around the parking lot and seeing a bunch of black kids. And then they're thinking, let, let me approach. But I, I think that that is a whole another episode in itself, because right. I do think it's really important for us to talk about the uh, how you're, how we're raising black kids and the naive thought process that they have, not even they're kids, right? That's the way a kid should grow up, not having to worry about all of this extra stuff that happens to, to go on. But I think that with you having a, a child of color and particularly a black or brown child, I'll say, because I, I don't want to just exclude this only to African-Americans because it mm-hmm. does happen to Mexican-Americans and other minorities that are brown, right? They get profiled too when they're in parking lots or gathered or they look suspicious. So I think that I, I think that, that there's a lot to unpack there. But to get back to this topic, and I think that your daughter does need to probably listen to some of these podcasts. I don't know if she'll mm-hmm. be willing to, but but kind of just the thoughts and, and kind of the experiences that you know other people have. But back to kind of this this mental health bucket, and we're gonna get Amari involved now because I think it's important. Um, one other thing I do want to mention though is there was an, another trauma, and I think we should get to this at some point in another show is I also experienced um, uh, a molestation actually. Mm -hmm. So I I think it's important to get to that on another, which also caused me to go to therapy. So there was a fourth time that I ended up going to therapy. So it was just, it's very natural for me to always seek it out when something's not quite right. But um, um, for Amari, um, why do you think, and, 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 and I've heard our friends say this, and I'm sure you've heard this, this Akil, is that when we talk about mental health and going to a therapist, a lot of times I've heard people say, well, I'm not crazy. That's right. Or nothing's wrong with me. Mm. Or this is just the way that life is. Why would I, I don't I need to pay somebody to tell me that this is the way life oh, is. Oh, you're so, weak. Yeah. Or mm. yeah. Or I'm weak. Yeah. So why do you think that there's a stigma around mental health in general in the black community? So that's for you, Amari. Well, first of all, thank you guys for for having me and thank you for addressing this very relevant and relatable and necessary topic. Um, So I think, you know, the short answer is what you guys have all, what you've described for, for the last few minutes. You know, it is you know, these little things that we don't consider as um, traumatic, right? And so, so much of trauma has been associated with like the military or police officers, right? Shell shock and war neurosis, right? And so that was the people that deserved, you know, air quotes, to kind of have this reaction. Um, And so what we're finding out, you know, very recently in, in the world of mental health um, with like Dr. Nadine Burke Harris's work, our California Surgeon General, when she talked about uh, the research with UCLA and Kaiser and the ACEs study, right? Is that mm-hmm. trauma can be, it, it's, it's whatever it, the reaction right. that it has to you, right? Mm-hmm. So it could be a parent's divorce. It could mm-hmm. be um, being a child of an alcoholic or an addict, right? And just growing up in that environment. And it can definitely be severe, you know, rape, molestations. It could be witnessing violent right. acts, right? Which obviously in the Black community, um, you know, I grew up in, in South Central for part of my life. And so that, you know, is is a daily thing, right? right? And so, like you said, it's like we 
But even before that, I just, because Akil, you mentioned something, the epigenetics mm-hmm. of trauma, right? And we are born, we were born into trauma, right? Yeah. And so it's passed down and it's in our muscles and it's in our DNA. And mm-hmm. so it happens so quickly, right? And we don't realize like, oh, that's because of this, that, and the other, right? So when when you talk about like why we don't address it, it's it's just we've had so much of it and we've had to survive, right? And and to stop and to talk to someone about it. Um, and then there's some myths of therapy. Right, right. Right. So a lot of people think that you know, a therapist is going to tell them what to do and is an advice giver, mm-hmm. right? Or a therapist, you know, and, and they're an advice giver and so they're an expert and they come from a place of they don't have any problems, they don't have any issues and they're unrelatable, right? And then for us as people of color, you know, to sit in a room and to unpack what we're going through with someone who typically doesn't look like us a mm-hmm. lot of the times is very uncomfortable, yeah. Right. It does. It, it, it's not something we want to do. It's not something that we're going to see. We'd rather talk to our homegirl, our homeboy or talk at the barbershop or the hair shop. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a lot better than sitting there and really unpacking it. The other thing is, you know, that we're going to psychoanalyze. And so that's really a, a, a small part of therapy. And that's really actually Freudian psychoanalytic therapy, you have to kind of be certified in that, right? Mm -hmm. That's not typical therapy, right? There's only a small percentage of therapists who even um, practice in that way. Um, But they think, okay, so now we're going to go back and we're going to dissect and, you know, everything that I do and they're writing on their little pad and they're writing Mm -hmm. every movement and, you know, I'm being analyzed, Right? right. And of course, that's uncomfortable. Who wants to go do that? Right. right. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. And then I think the one of the biggest things is, is, you know, people are afraid, too, of falling apart. You know, the, the nervous breakdown, if you will, and and something coming out and them not being able to contain themselves and be able to function. So I think, you know, all of those reasons, not to mention our parents' mental health was not prominent. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in our parents' generation, you think about it, you know, they were parented by by a generation that experienced the Great Depression and World War One, and then you, you have World War Two, and then, you know, you Civil come back rights. and civil rights. I mean, yeah. there was a lot of other stuff, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, really. really about. Um, and so, and, you know, Jim Crow, Jim Crow, all of these different yep. things. So, you know, it was survival. And that's what yeah. I was going to, that, that's, that, I'm glad you said that because um, that's what I always kind of saw it as, you know, it's a, it, to to admit or to feel like you have to go and talk to someone or get therapy is almost a kink in your armor, right? I mean, and and the fact that yeah. um, you know, you, I, I I liken it to athletes. Um, I've known a lot of professional athletes, and um, 
And one of the things about professional athletes is that if if they get an injury and they don't feel like or they are told in some way or another that they would not recover from that injury or it's a potential uh, career ending injury or one of those some of these key words, it takes Mm -hmm. away that edge that they need in order to go out there and do what they do. Right. And then they become, you know, a moment timid or a moment, you know, slower, or they may, you know, they may, they may not react the way they normally would because they, you know, they, they go out there to a certain degree as superhuman, right. And super, you know, and so they got to feel that, you know, that's that, that kind of, um, you know, that feeling in order to be able to perform with other superhumans, (laughs) you know, out on those fields mm-hmm. or in the, in the boxing ring or wherever they're doing their thing. Um, and so I just think with us, as you name, as you went through, you know, World War II, Jim Crow, you know, I mean, and you go all the way through, through history, we have like not had time to say, right. you know, let me go and get some therapy around this or that or the other. You know, and that's not even counting right. what's going on in the house. That's not counting on what's going on amongst family. That's not counting what's going on in the community. So it's, you know, it to me, it's always been like, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that for one reason. You just said, if I open up Pandora's box, I probably can't close it. And then two, right. it may put a, it, it may, it may put a kink in my armor and I need this armor in order to survive. Right. Yeah. Right. You got, you bring up an interesting point and I'm just going to bring this out just because um, my father was a product of all of the history you talked about, but my mother was from South America. So she was, she had that mm. history was not her history. Right. Mm. Although uh, she had other really traumatic history, right. Growing up in an, uh, um, a very poor country, uh, a country where, you know, an apple was considered uh, like a luxury item, right? On their birthday, they got apples and stuff like that. So from extreme poverty, right? right, Rising out of extreme poverty mm-hmm. and coming to a country that's completely foreign as an adult and having to adjust to that. So I think there's so many levels of uh, of impact, right? Just from the history, you know, and then when you come together in a household where one person's trauma is based on one set of circumstances and another person's trauma is based on a whole another set of mm-hmm. circumstances. And then they, 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 they procreate and they have a bunch of kids. And now you've got both sets of, of circumstances in that household trying to, to weigh down on you. But, you know, as you guys were talking, I, I, I think, you know, sometimes my mom has to re- remind me that American history isn't her history. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that is so strange, you know, like I That's really deep. It is really deep, is. right? Because she's like, oh, I didn't, like, sometimes if I mention, obviously, you know, I'll mention something in history and she remembers it like a textbook memory, right? Is is versus like the, all the years you learn it, you know, and she's a teacher, so she also had to teach it. But even for her, teaching history was more difficult because it wasn't her history she was teaching, mm-hmm. right? So she had to teach it like right. out of the book. Like with no context right. other than what she had learned in, in school. So it, it, it's an interesting thing. But to keep us back on this, because I think we were hitting on something, and I think you hit on it, Akil, is that um, one of the thoughts I have is that 
sometimes black people will turn to church or other yes. avenues of healing where yes. people may or may not have the formal training to really help them through a situation, although it doesn't always need that. But why do you think that black people turn to church or uh, avenues of that sort for heal for the healing process? Well, you know, I don't know who your audience is. I don't want to alienate. This is a <laughs> no. You can, you can keep it all the way a thousand. Go ahead. But you know, yeah, I mean, we're good. That, again, right? I I really feel like uh, uh, black as fuck right now. It goes all the way back <laughs> to slavery, That's right. right? That's right. Absolutely, that without a doubt, is how we were taught to cope with our feelings and our this and our that and our anger and and our helplessness, right? Mm -hmm. It was to look to the sky. And and we were given this very this this existential. And what's interesting is, you know, our natural way, right? And and probably you know, most indigenous peoples, the natural way was a was really a collective almost therapy session with your elders. That's right. Right. And your mm -hmm. and and they would guide you. That's right. Right. And ask you those poignant questions to help you come up with this aha moment. Right. We think about the Lion King, like, you know, mm -hmm. that's and so that part was taken away from us. Right. And so now our people experience this collective trauma and, you know, the Bible was ingrained. Um, and so I think, I think that's part of the reason why. Right. I love, I love that. Yeah. And I, I yeah. First of all, don't hold back. So <laughs> like, you, know, you want to <laughs> drop, we, we will, you know, <laughs> we will, we will, uh, we're, we're still, it's funny because as we talked about um, how we were going to do this um, at, from the very beginning, we're like, you know what, we're just going to talk. And mm -hmm. if it's something that we need to edit, We'll edit, but we don't plan on editing out anything, yeah. anything so, like that. But what I but what I'll say though, real quick, is that I read something interesting until your point, and that was um, we were it was talking about why do we as um, you know just say indigenous people, let's say black people, Africans, um, look at some of our Arishas and some of our and and you know some of these beliefs as crazy, but we don't look at the at at Christianity is crazy, right? Or we don't look at Judaism as crazy. We don't look at, but that's all in part of our indoctrination, right? Right. right. Um, well, you know, and you go back to slavery and we, you know, that's all we had. We couldn't look to the earth because the earth was painful yes. for us. Yes. You know, it was only the sky. And we were, we were, you know, we were indoctrinated to think that, you know, savior was coming from the sky. Right. And we were actually our own saviors. Right. I mean, you know, again, taking the power away, right? And when you really That's look right. at it, Christianity, I mean, they took it and based it off of our shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. that's really what they yeah. did. And so, mm -hmm. you know, this idea of this one centric God that they genderized also, right? And that they, you know, yep. they made and it was a use of power and it was, you know, to take the power away, right? To crusade and take the power away from us as an individual, right? And well, you know, something that 
something that happened and I, it kind of goes right with what you're saying, Amari, something that happened in the, the BLM movement that I thought was so interesting that, that, that I think people didn't catch on to or really think about is that I, I don't know if you guys had heard it, but it, it was, she was a, a lady that they had filmed and she was talking about kind of the, the movement and at the end of the culmination of kind of going through the history of trauma for black people, she said, you should be glad that the only thing yes. that black people want right. is is justice, justice and not, not revenge. revenge. Basically, oh well, yes, absolutely. Right? So, mm-hmm. yes, honey, she she yeah. gave it to us, right? Yeah, I I reposted that at least twenty times. Because because if you think about kind of what you're saying, Amari, is that if you think about when crusading happened and uh, in slavery and kind of keeping the institution the way that you wanted it to be, you did have to strip out uh, people's language and uh, customs and cultures. And you did have to bring in something else, a belief that was disconnected from them, but also that they would, they would, uh, you know, adhere to or believe in or follow so that you could keep the status quo. Yes, to keep them in line, right? Mm. A belief that's real to keep trauma. Them in line. Yeah, that's real yeah. trauma. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, but it's definitely. interesting. Well, so, all of these four hundred years, right, right, of trauma yeah. that that was experienced before us, and then it was carried down. And so, when we experience something like a domestic violence incident or a car accident or a, you know, that feeling comes back, mm. right? It, it happens in an instant, mm-hmm. right? So that's why I asked you like, okay, how did the, 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 the domestic violence affect? You probably don't even know because in right. 3.5 seconds, no matter how loud or ratchet a woman gets, that memory is mm-hmm. deactivating and keeping mm-hmm. you from raising your hand, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and, and there's also, you know, people that it could have the opposite effect as well, right? Where mm-hmm. it, it unfortunately can create further abuse. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you talk about drama even, mm-hmm. so it, there comes a point, right, where your stress level gets so high that your ability to, so I, I, I remember growing up in the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jordans. Yep. And, you know, you stepped on somebody's Jordans. Oh, it's on and popping. Oh, it's on. Mm-hmm. Now, is it really about the Jordans? No. It's about the disrespect. level of disrespect this man has moved through all day long, all mm-hmm. year long at work in his family. And then he is fly dressed to the nines and you are disrespecting, mm-hmm. right? There is no, it, it, he's going to let loose. Yeah. Right. Zero that to rubber band. Oh yeah. And so that person is going to get it. Not just for mm-hmm. stepping on the shoe, but all every, you know, the boss he couldn't cuss out, the, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the kid he, the bill he couldn't pay because he bought the Jordans. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> right? That you now you don't step on, right? And so that's what happens. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. And so when we when we see someone reacting to something, you know, benign or small, and we go, damn, you know, chill out. Yeah. You know, for me, I see okay. 
there's something there, right? To the That's average right. person, we name that crazy or bipolar, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That, and, you know, we have some we have some questions to get deeper into that situation. Mm-hmm. I think that could cause a kill to want to have a whole show on it. But but we're <laughs> you know. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, but I kind of want to go back to it is what effect do you think that this trauma that people have suffered have on their relationships? And I think we kind of have touched it in a couple of ways, but from a professional um, perspective, what, what do you, what have you seen? Well, I think for the, for, for a lot of us, we had to reparent ourselves, right? Mm. Because our emotions weren't, uh, validated or looked into not no shade to our parents right they right. didn't know they had to work they weren't there you know I was a latchkey kid so you yeah. know they're you know and they did their best they did their best right there's no shade but they they didn't give us that atonement right mm-hmm. and so when we don't get that we don't have that atonement we don't have that secure attachment and then we move. That's the first relationship that we have in this world is that's with our right. parents and our families of origin. And depending on if we didn't have that, now we're out as an adult and we want to find that true love, that safety net. But do we know what safety is? Mm-hmm. Or we attract statement. our parent. Or we attract our yeah. parent, right? Because we're trying to heal that trauma. Yes. But also, to your point, uh, uh, Sia, the interesting thing about the effects of trauma is that if the state that we were in for so long in a prolonged period of time, even though it was harmful, the brain seeks normalcy. It's comfortable. Mm-hmm. It is comfortable mm-hmm. to have a level of drama. So I'm sure you guys know people is like, damn, you always oh. you can never just have a good time. Yes. Right? You know? Yeah, stay in conflict. Yes, because Mm. that is normal to them. They know how to deal with that because they have learned how to deal with that trauma, that feeling of being unsafe, of not knowing what's going to happen. So to be able to recognize, you know, a safety in another person, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they have like, it's hard, it's difficult. And so you have to almost kind of reparent and heal from those things and be willing to kind of look at them. Not necessarily through therapy. Therapy is not therapy is not the only way. I can tell you going to church and you know praying. That's that's not going to give you that, that insight and that self awareness, right? But it is recognizing like, hey, these are some deficits that I didn't have, right? And taking a look at yourself from a bird's eye view in relationships. I mean, I've messed up a lot of relationships, mm-hmm. right, <laughs> because of my trauma, right? Um, and so, you know, the first relationships that you have, depending on how good, how how secure they were, is definitely going to affect, you know, your relationships in the future, how you talk to people, how you handle conflict, right? right. And so that's mm-hmm. another thing, especially in the African-American community, in the Black community. And, I, you know, I got to say, uh, uh, brown people as well, mm-hmm. right? We, you know, conflict is not something that we dealt with right everything is swept under the rug you know um i think about my my 94 year old grandmother who was supportive to me and everything but she never could understand me being a therapist Mm. and why anybody 
would want to sit there and talk about their dirty laundry and why I wanted to listen to it. Right. That was a concept that literally, you know, it was like the the Microsoft spooling. <laughs> you know, it's like right. it, it just did it, it it didn't make sense to her. You dealt you you know, stuff happened, like you don't tell the kids. Yeah. You don't tell, you don't yeah. talk about, you know, you don't talk about, you know, that dirty old man and Uncle Joe. Oh, what? You know, and mm. also when you talk about some of these things, you know, black girls, we were we were called fast, mm. right? If you if you wore something a certain way or if you did so, a lot of times, you know, that was frowned upon as well. So you 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 were you automatically felt like, oh, if I say something, you know. That Uncle Sammy, you know, kind of, you know, pinched mm-hmm. me in the wrong place. Right. I'm going to be thought of as fast. You mm-hmm. asked for it, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then when you do say something, it's like, well, stay away from Uncle Sammy. You know, he's a dirty yeah. old man, right? You know, but some nobody, of it, but nobody is <laughs> addressing him. But nobody's right. dealing with no. Uncle Sammy. Yeah, We're yeah. Just like, right. yeah. We, we yeah. still got to right. invite him to the function, <laughs> right? Why he's still here? Why? Why we can't? Yeah. You know, but yeah. it's it's. You know, so these kind of relationships, you know, um, they evolve as stuff comes out. Yeah. And you, you know, I, I see, I, I see it. I've had talks before where I think, you know, you got a good ninety days of keeping your shit together before something starts yeah. to spill out in a in a relationship, right. and that becomes really hard when your issues and my issues and your insecurity and my insecurity and now you know i have to reassure you and help to heal you know and sometimes we don't want to do that because you know we've been disneyized disneyized i just made that word up to think that you know relationships are you know we're supposed to save each other and, and go over the rainbow so i got i got two i got two questions for um because you, you brought up some things that I wanted to. So the one about the comfort of being in a traumatic state, I guess, and, mm-hmm. and you know, and kind of living in that, um, I think is really interesting because uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we talk, you know, we think about we think about folks who, um, you know, spend a lot of time in prison. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they come out of prison and then. They like go and rob a liquor store. You know you're going right back to prison, but they do it a lot of times as self-sabotaging right behavior. Mm -hmm. And they do that because that trauma, that that prison life is more comfortable to -hmm. them. And -hmm. they can deal with that a lot, that level of trauma more than they can deal with what's what's out in the free world. Right. So that, that's one thing. The other thing is I've worked with 16 to 24 year olds for 20 years. Right. Um, and I don't like to call them at risk youth, but they've been called at risk mm-hmm, youth and, mm-hmm. and, you know, different different levels of, of, of youth in that age group. And um, one thing that I have progressively seen throughout the years is this inability to to to. Um, this inability to uh, uh, have impulse control. Yes. This whole thing around impulse control, right? I mean, and, and we look at, you know, we look at from, you know, I grew up, you know, I'm a, I was born in 73, so I grew up in the 80s and the 90s mm-hmm. too. So, you know, so 
you know, I'm looking at the, that time period and I'm from the Bay and, you know, in California. So we, I think we all kind of up and down the West coast experienced a lot of the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember us as wild as we might've been or the wild of the wildest of us have been. I remember them. I remember it's always, you know, if somebody, if a, if an older person was in the car, you know, rode up next to you, you still turn mm-hmm. your music down. Yes. We wasn't cussing all loud and, and, mm-hmm. and talking crazy to, to our, to older mm-hmm. folks, especially mm-hmm. not nobody grandma or nothing, you know, and, and then as time has passed, and I would use this, you know, this 20 year period that I've been working with that age group from the time that I started working with that age group to now, there's no holes barred. No, you no. know, they, they, you know, they, you know, they will go and punch an old lady in the face. Yeah, yeah. They, you but, know, you know, if they feel like they're being disrespected or they feel mm-hmm. like they, you know, you said something to them, this, that, and the other. And, you know, there's, they know who to bully and who not to bully. Mm-hmm. So they don't do that to everybody. But I just have noticed that that has been, you know, and I'm wondering what level of trauma created that mm. or is just a progressive progression of a condition that, you know, we have. Uh- Later. Yeah, I mean, I, I before you go ahead. Yeah, be, before you answer, because I think you are going to unpack it. But one other thing I wanted to add is when I've thought about that myself, because we thought about you coming on and really correcting the way, you know, the opinions of people that really are just making it out of their own thoughts, <laughs> right? And you being like, well, that's not that's not really how it is. But when that comes up for me, I think about the fact that everything is a lot more expensive, right? So parents both parents, all parents, grandparents, a lot of people are working outside of the home. And to your point of parenting ourselves, who is teaching the children a lot of the times Uh, what's respectful and what's disrespectful, right? Like you you don't talk to an adult that way. That is a lesson that you are taught because your parent is going to snatch you by your ear and tell you what, who you talk to, you know? Mm. Uh, But if you're always by yourself or you're being, you know, if you're an after school care or you're a latchkey kid or you're not having any interaction, then like a two year old, three year old, four year old, when you watch those kids try to struggle for their independence when you're their babies and toddlers and somebody hits them, what do they do? They hit them right back. Right. They they react in a very immature mm-hmm. kind of stunted mm-hmm type of situation. And I'm wondering in Amari, I'm going to let you jump in here because I know you have things to say. I'm wondering if that's contributing to the society that we now see because one, people are distracted by a lot of things, mm-hmm. social media, mm-hmm. a lot of things. Two, parents are being under more pressure to just have to keep up with paying the bills. And that means being outside of the home. Mm-hmm. And, and and three, a lot of the elders also are not in the community stepping in in like they used to right to be like I'll snatch you by your ear even if your mom's not here it sounds to me it's like I've seen people have their kids jumping on the table next to me and doing all this crazy and I want to snatch them up but we're not in a situation where we've allowed for that community to exist anymore so it's almost like these kids are raising themselves but that's just my thought go ahead Amari that was a lot so I'm going to start with (laughs) I think I'm going to start with the 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 your point, Zia, yes, you know, there's, I think social media, the internet, you know, that's a constant dopamine rush for every life, yes, every, yes. you know, it, it's, it's just instant, right? And so 
And I think also that instant gratification, right? There's there's no experience of some of these, you know, people want to call them negative emotions, right? And so I think now that we are starting to talk about mental health in our generation and think about, you know, I have a 16-year-old as well. And, you know, when he was born, the thing that I said, the thing that I, you are, I am not going to do you the way I was done. You are going to have a better life, right? Yeah. So with that, right, and I, and I know so many of my, my friends that felt the same way. And so we worked hard and we gave, you know, pretty much all of these things that we didn't have. We want to be mm-hmm. parents. We're also parenting in the age of CPS and Child Protective Services. So we can't snap. Oh, yeah. Like we want to snap. That's right. Took our That's power right. away from us, right? And I remember I tried that one time. We called the cops, and you know that didn't work out very well for me. Right. <laughs> but you know, and so our parent, our power is taken away as parents. Yet our school police can touch our children. And I think, ooh, yes, yeah, to your point, you know, we're we're busy working and and making sure that that the kids have everything that they need. Um, and so. Something like, you know, an impulse. They, I don't even think they even understand what that is, right? They're, that amount of time to make a decision. Not to mention, you know, the prefrontal cortex is not developed, right? right. So right. Until you know, 25, 26. And so that's the part of the brain that executive functioning and linear thought processes and being able to say, okay, if I do A, B will happen. If B happens, C will happen. And they mm-hmm. don't have that ability. And I do think social media and internet plays a part in that, right? It's just not developing yeah. as fast cognitively um, because why does it have to? Right. And by that time, you end up making moves and doing and having actions that have lifelong consequences. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's, you know, unfortunately for many, it's already over yeah. at 17. And I think too, yeah. maybe you know this age group is a little removed, maybe a little far removed from like you know the OGs and the you know right. what, what was happening, and you know even you know I, I don't think I've done the best job um, of, of teaching my son you know about the civil rights movement and making sure he watches Eye on the Prize, and you know I just remember you know my grandmother and, you know, making me learn the Negro national anthem, you know, making me watch this, making me listen to Martin Luther King's. And so I understood that movement. Right. Um, Because my mom and dad were a little bit in that. Right. Right. But if you think about it, if we're talking about the, you know, 1980s, 1990s, that's not that far from 1964. Right. But 2020. Yes. It's hella far. Right. <laughs> you yeah, know, I mean, it's, I- in context, it's not. But if you think about it, you know, you think about, you know, those type of things. Mm-hmm. And so it's really so important to, you know, yes, I think it's important to for historical context for them to get that. But you got to make it real for to. them today but, right? and, 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 I, and match it to today, which yeah. is what's great about this generation and how they're handling this this Black Lives Movement and mm-hmm. how active and how committed and dedicated you know, they are to mm-hmm, what's mm-hmm. going on right now. Um, well, and I think and making that to your point, Akil, and I think Sia, you mentioned this too with the, and if this is probably a whole another episode is that racial trauma, right? 
And so I think this generation now is tired of America gaslighting us, right? And acting like, oh, what are you guys just, okay, get over it, right? Yeah, what do you have to be right. mad about, right? Yeah. And, you know, microaggressions, you know, people couldn't understand mm-hmm. that and the things that we deal with. And so I think this generation is like, yo, they're not having it. We're not having it. Like, well, now, uh, you know, but even, even the Karen and the Ken phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? Those aggressions that you can see that are now being illuminated because yes. we do have social media. One thing about social media that is beautiful. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's holding accountability in some cases Without for people mm-hmm. who were doing this forever, right? This was mm-hmm. the, the way that, you know, they were, I was just at lunch with somebody today and, and, and she's a she's a, a a white lady that's a friend of mine, and she was telling me that she was complaining about her hotel room, and one of our other friends told her, "Don't be a Karen, <laughs> right?" And she had asked me, she had asked me if how could it be a Karen if she wasn't talking to any person of color? So mm-hmm. I had to break down mm-hmm. what a Karen was mm-hmm. to her, like mm-hmm. just coming from a place of privilege. I and, and trying to explain to her that if I would have taken the same actions in the same hotel, the result could have been very different. I was being aggressive. You know, I, you know, it wasn't necessarily going to be customers always first. She got free this or that because of her, her Karenness, right Mm. today. So, uh, and I, I was proud of our other friend for calling her out and being like, don't, like straight up right <laughs> after that happened, like, don't be a Karen. Like she just straight said that that's like, you know, an adjective. Now you're just describing people as Karens here and there. But I think just not even having the awareness that they sit in the world kind of like that. And we, we have an awareness that we cannot. Absolutely. Right. We have a constant awareness that we cannot Absolutely. because of all of the history yeah. and, uh, of, of what that is. And now because we are confined in this collective trauma, Right. And mm. and we had no yeah. choice but to watch someone die for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And we had nowhere right. to go. Um, you know, I think over and over and over, over again, and over and over and over again. Right. Mm. And I think that vicarious trauma, I will always remember that. Right. Again, that's something that we we, we don't have to experience it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you were talking about Akio, when you were talking about your 16 year old daughter, you know, sitting in the car and I have a 16 year old and we just went through a whole mm-hmm. Karen situation and a whole, it, it, you know, I don't even have to go there. My, my breath got very short. My heart, oh, yeah. You know, it, it, it is something, you know, when Sia talks about, you know, when you when you're dating a, a black man and just it, there's so many mm-hmm. things. Right, mm-hmm. that it has not happened to me. Right, like right. that situation hasn't happened to me. I haven't really gotten pulled over by the police, but every time one is behind me, there is something mm-hmm. that. Yep. I'm like, am I right? You're a heightened. I, I just go. Yep. Insurance is good. Registration is good. I ain't been. Yep. I got all my lights. My <laughs> lights working. Right. Like this is right. You know. Yeah. Um, and so that feeling just comes. And this is something mm. that, you know, other people could n- never understand, right? Yeah. Never understand. And I think now, you know, it, it's actually being validated. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it took so long, but no, no longer this gaslighting of our experience yeah. and what we're going through, right? It's actually valid. 
Although I think they still think that some of it is drama. Like I do think that some of it still gets described as you're being dramatic. This can't happen all the time. Blue lives matter, this and that. Uh, you know, I, I think it, it is just an extension of wanting to say that it, that that experience were being dramatic. It was only that one time. It's only been that two times. Right. Or these are just examples I've, I've had at work people say, well, how I had somebody directly say, well, how many people have been killed? How many black people have been killed by the police? Yeah. Like more than right? one is, 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 you know, like, like it matters. Matters. Yeah. right. And I, I think Chris, What's was it Chris part? Rock? It was either Chris Rock or, or DL Hughley. And so I'm sorry if I'm getting it wrong, but one of them was like some jobs, you just can't mess right. up. And Chris it's Rock. Like, yeah. He, he, yeah, he was saying that when you get in a plane, yeah. you expect that pilot to land that plane every single time. And there's no excuse for crashing a plane. Nobody gives the pilot an excuse for crashing the plane, right? right. The same way is the way that we need to look at uh, the police situation, yes. right? It's some jobs you take. It's you just don't have the opportunity to make those kind of mistakes mm -hmm. when it costs somebody their lives. So it doesn't matter if it's one or 100 or 1000. Right. It's all the same trauma to us because the fact is, is that we can see ourselves inside that other person, right? Yeah. We can see that our skin color is not that different, that our uncle looks just like that, that, mm -hmm. um, you know, we've, we, both of us just described an incident that was not far from each other, mm -hmm. right? One was a burglary and one was just sitting in the car. Mm -hmm. N neither incident warranted that reaction right. from the officers, but they felt justified or privileged enough in their, in their uniforms with their guns yeah. to participate that way. Right. To, in, instead of asking the question, even, you know, we just saw one, I, I think it was in Georgia the other day where, you know, uh, somebody had claimed that a person was yelling or kicked their car or something. And then the, the officer comes up and on the porch yeah. of the person and, and, and ends up tasing her and doing and all of these woman. things. Mm -hmm. It was a woman yeah. and her friends were trying to protect her yeah. and he just kept going and now he got fired. But the thing is, is why is it acceptable as a society? Why have we decided that that behavior is acceptable and, oh, their jobs are difficult or, oh, they were just investigating or, oh, and, and what drives me up the wall and I just have to get this out is why is it acceptable for you to ask, what did that person do? What did that person do to die? I don't know. I don't care if that person murdered someone else. The guy who killed all those people in that church, you took him to get a burger and got him to jail and you didn't kill him. You didn't have to do any of those things. And you knew he was a murderer. We knew that. Mm -hmm. See, it wasn't even a alleged or somebody called in about somebody. You knew the guy, you hunted him down, you got him right. and you still treated him like a human being getting him Burger King and water before you took him to jail where, why is it? So why do we have to look into, well, what did that person do? That shouldn't even be a question. Mm -hmm. Nobody does anything to deserve to die unless they are actually shooting. Trying to kill you. The police officer. Well, yes, exactly. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's just justification, right? It's like the, you know, what did she do to get raped? Right. What, it, what, right. What did exactly. To, to, you know, when police officers respond. And the funny thing is, is police officers respond to domestic violence incidences, right? They don't handle it. 
but they have high rates. Oh, they have one of them, the highest rates. And so they'll usually tell, you know, the abuser, oh, go walk it off, especially if it's a male. But the first question, what did you do, ma'am? Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what were you wearing? And, you know, you shouldn't have had on the clothes. And what did she do to deserve? You know, Megan, the stuff, what did you do to get? Why'd you walk down that street? Why did you walk down that street? Right. So, you know, we're we're always questioning the victim to justify the the, um, perpetrator and the the predator. Right. So, you know, I know your show is, is talking about the drama. Right. And so, yeah, you know, I think the best way that I can is it ever it, drama? Is it, it is it, it ever it's, it's drama? It's not right because again, you know, there's something behind that, right? If you look at right. the function of, of of the behavior, it's just what what drama can you can you stand and what drama can you you be around, right? So if somebody, so if somebody to lighten, I guess to to uh, you know, I shouldn't make light of it, but I'm gonna make a joke of it. So if someone stubs their toe mm-hmm. and they fall all out on the ground and roll around yeah. and you know, you're like, damn, you're being hella dramatic about stubbing your toe. Yeah. Now, is there something that happened? Yes, absolutely. That's traumatic in their life at one point. You know what? That, yeah, that caused that. Uh, okay. Yeah, or or you know, and 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 that's in a simplistic form, right? But it could right, be a bad course. day. You know, it, it's so funny that you mentioned. That. I remember one of my sons. Very, he's been playing soccer for ooh, long time, ten years, and so we had a bad morning at a soccer game, right? He had a bad morning. He had got in trouble. You know, it was just a lot. Mm. Um, it was super hot. You know, they were playing a right. team that had kicked their behind before. You know, he just was in a bad frame of mind. My son, being one of the, the only Black players, gets fouled flagrantly a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. this particular game, he literally got maybe bumped. Right. But he fell out on the ground and was down there right. for, you know, right. the stretcher, bring the stretcher. <laughs> and I'm like, and he just was, and I, you know, and I, Medic. and I knew, you know, he was letting it out. He just needed an excuse to cry, right? He just right, wanted right. to get that energy out. So, yeah, there, there's just something else, right? So when I see people's drama, I'm like, yeah, right? She's going through a lot, right? Because that's a lot of times we're trying to handle it. We don't, we we, we don't want to be weak. You know, we want to be independent, right? Which, you know, I think independence has been um, renamed, you know, this really self-reliance is how we describe it to people, Mm -hmm. which that's not independence, but we try to hold it all together. And so I do think sometimes it is, you know, something small, right? Um, You know, that maybe can happen with our partners or our family members that can cause this mood um, or this drama, if you will. But it's never about, you know, the sub It's like the tipping point. It's the the tipping point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So do you think that people of color suffer from depression or mental illness in higher numbers than others? No, I don't, I don't think it's disproportionately higher. Um, I think that's a misnomer. You know, I don't know if we would ever really know because most of us don't, don't, you know, 
don't seek seek counsel. But um, I think we do have waves of, of depression and anxiety that can happen. You know, that doesn't mean you're mentally ill, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. th- this idea of being crazy. If, if, you know, you can be depressed as a result of, you know, some grief and loss. You know, Sia mentioned to having right. a difficult breakup and, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? And you, you're having a period of time of, of sadness. Um, and then right. you have, you do have people that suffer from a more recurrent, you know, uh, depression and anxiety or more debilitating um, where it takes away from their functioning. And that's what, gotcha. what most people, like when you stop going to work, when you stop feeding yourself, when you stop showering, right? When you mm. stop hanging around, you know, your, your support groups, when you stop doing, playing basketball and doing the things that you normally do, when you have a hard time right. getting out of bed, right? Now we're dealing mm-hmm. with a more, you know, pervasive, you know, major depression disorder versus, yeah, gotcha. you know, I'm feeling sad, you know, I, I, I'm crying, right. I, I have some low motivation. You know, it's, it's a little bit harder to we do call things. it being in a funk, right? Yeah, but you're getting things done. Yeah, just being in a funk, right? yeah, yeah. But Akil, you mentioned mm-hmm. something very, very poignant. I want to just bring that is that a lot of us, it, there has to be something wrong. Right. So, you know, Johnny would go see a therapist because, you know, he's got ADHD or because he, you know, has some object aggression and he's throwing stuff at his, you know. And so there's, you know, this emotional kind of uh, disturbance that's that's needed or something bad or, you know, you get a kid on probation and now they got to go see a therapist. There's always something Mm -hmm. bad happens before we get therapeutic intervention. Right. Right. Just, the, right. The whole, that's the whole world. Yeah. But, you know, luckily, you know, your mom's like, hey, go talk to someone. It started at an early that's age. Right. right. So that's, you know, that's what it's about. You have to introduce that. Right. To um, well, what, what, what just in. Yeah. It's interesting because my mom had never had therapy herself mm-hmm. when she did that. I don't know. And I probably should have before we prep for this, I should have asked her what made her do that right because it wasn't Mm -hmm. that she had therapy or she had you know had you know turned to that in her lifetime I think that she had decided um through a series of events like I said there was a molestation uh there was a car accident and there was a death of my father around the same year right time. So a lot of stuff going on at the same time which maybe she sought advice from someone else. and I'm thankful for it that she was, she was smart enough to seek advice from someone who probably had had therapy before and said, well, why don't you put her or put them in, in this? But, but I think that um, to your point, Amari, when I did have that traumatic breakup, I broke up with that person and that situation, that breaking point lasted about a year and seven weeks but I said I stayed in th- therapy for three years, mm-hmm. right? And so I didn't stop because I just was like, the therapist was like, after a while, she, I would just go in there and talk about stresses from work. I would go in there and talk about um, just, you know, trying mm-hmm. to figure out next steps in my own life. I would go in there and talk about, uh, you know, roommate situation. I could go in there and talk about anything. My son, what he was doing in the week that I couldn't really figure out how to handle. And I just felt like it was, for for me, therapy means, um, for me, it's that 
you can talk to your friends and I have a lot of great friends and, you know, I actually know Amari personally. So I have a lot of, I, I mean, I have friends that I could call, right. And get an extra, I get, I get a double with her. Like she could be my friend. She could you know, throw a little therapy right. in there. That's right. um, but, but I don't, I still think that what I like about therapy is it's, it's a person who has is totally objective, right? Because they don't have any personal stake mm-hmm. in the conversation that you're having with them other than your well-being. So it's not that you get, and they don't, mostly from my experience, I've dealt with therapists. And I think that you were kind of hitting on this in the beginning, Amari. It's not like they are telling you what to do. They're talking you through the situation and you're telling yourself mm-hmm. what to do. Mm-hmm. Right. You're you're talking through it and the, the they're they're getting you to kind of they're questioning you to the point where your mind is starting to think on its own yes. in a certain way. So then when you separate from the therapist, your mind still goes through that process. Right. right? Your, your mind is still going to take those logical steps to say, OK, like, for instance, maybe I overreacted mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. But why did I overreact? Maybe because that reminded me of something my mom did. But why did that thing that my mom did bother me? So it's like your brain starts to do this <laughs> way after years after you're gone from therapy right. and you start to be able to settle your reactions to things sometimes because yeah. you know what's triggering the reaction rather than just reacting. That's why I think for people to seek other avenues and I and, and we're going to get to kind of other non-expensive you know, sources that people might be able to seek out. Um, but I think that it's important for people to um, consider it and not consider it with shame or a stigma. Because like I said, it's, and like she said, it doesn't have to be something wrong right. because life is hard enough. Yes. I mean, I think that everybody needs coronavirus, uh, in my opinion, <laughs> coronavirus therapy, because I know a lot of people right now that are coming unhinged, like mm-hmm. they're doing a lot of strange things, right? They're, their relationships are breaking all the way apart. Um, Anything that was a stressor in the relationship is being exacerbated. You know, people are on top of each other in their homes. They can't separate, right? Because you're in this COVID situation. Mm -hmm. So you can go, if your home is small, you're right on top of each other. So the person doesn't do the dishes. It can send you over the edge. And it's really, it's a little tipping point of all this other stuff y'all didn't think about or deal with. But I think that 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 stuff, you know, people really need to stop living with the shame and think, okay, I'm going to go and talk to someone because I don't have the coping mechanisms to do this on my own. And my partner is not a therapist. Your partner is not going to give you the coping mechanisms either. Yeah, it's. I think it's. I. I I just wanted to jump in just because there was one thing that I that that you said that really resonated with me. And that was the, uh, for both of you actually that, you know, kind of the ongoing um, perspective of therapy, right. That, you know, see you say, you know, and then you, you went for one particular thing and then, you know, you end up talking about how your day was at work or what's mm-hmm. going on with this and that and the other. Um, my two experiences, one was my parents got divorced. So during that whole like family family counseling thing during the divorce. Um, we went a few times, very few times. And and then we were like, okay, we're done with this, mm-hmm. right? And then the second one was um, at a point in my marriage. Mm-hmm. And almost very similar to that, we went a few times and 
okay, we did it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then we move on. And, and, um, and so it sounds, you know, a lot to me. And I think what I want, you know, make sure that the audience, whoever is listening to this um, kind of picks up from this is that it's not necessarily like going to get your brakes fixed on your car, right? <laughs> you fix it, you know, or, or something, you know, something in your home or something like that, sure. you go and fix it and it's fixed and, you know, you might have a guarantee on it. So you might be able to call them if it breaks again, but that's that. Um, this is much more than that, right? And this is, you know, and this is a, a, a process and, a, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's an important spot because I think that I think that more people have experienced it the way that I've experienced it mm -hmm. than than folks like, you know, like Sia just described yeah. it, it, as it becomes part of your kind of your lifestyle or your life, you know, kind of journey. Yeah. Well, one one thing I do want to bring up is the one of the people that I'm speaking about, and I know he is going to listen to this, but he he had depression. He suffered from depression and and pretty manic depression, I think pretty severe. And, um, he ended up going to the therapist with me, right. At some point. And if nothing else, he didn't go for very long, but I, I just was speaking with him the other day and he had described it. He always described the depression coming on like darkness, mm -hmm. like he could feel mm -hmm. the darkness coming. And, um, and I just really couldn't connect because even though I've been sad, kind of like what Amari described, I've never been de clinically depressed, mm -hmm. right? I don't think I've ever experiencing that. But what he said is the other day, he, 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 he never had this language before. And I, I dealt with him for a very, very long time. He told me, Hey, I'm not today. I'm not having a good day mm. and I'm not feeling that great. Right. So I knew what that meant, but he told me, that the therapist that we went to see gave him some coping mechanisms to talk him out of when he feels the darkness coming, mm -hmm. some things to do to talk himself out of it coming. Right. And basically, you know, you know, he, he, he talks to himself basically like you're okay that, you know, that that's not that big of a deal. We can work through that. You'll get over it. It's just temporary. So there's a, there's language mm -hmm. that he has in his mind yes. now that I didn't even know he had. But when I just talked to him the other day, which was amazing for him to be able to describe kind of how he went through the process of getting himself to a point where he could get through the day, mm. it didn't come this time. Wow. But it used to be that it would take him out for like a week, mm -hmm. right? Every time these episodes would happen, it would take him completely down for a week. Yeah. And now he's learned and it, it doesn't always, he can't always talk himself out of it, but he told me that just having those tools that she gave him to kind of process what he's going through and recognize when it's coming and feel it coming in and talk his, his give him the affirmations, the other things that she taught him to do has made all the difference in how long it stays sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Because he's still, as he's entering the dark period, he still talks him through the period. And so it gets shorter and shorter. And that is amazing. That's another example of why people who, and he came from a very traumatic upbringing, very traumatic. And he didn't deal with that trauma. He kept it inside for so many years, not dealing with it. And it always is catching up, right? Mm -hmm. In ways. And he's he's now using those tools he got from, from therapy, even after therapy, same way that I said that that um, I'm able to, you know, um, 
kind of talk myself through mm-hmm. things that are happening mm-hmm. in life because I have the tools to do it. I love that. I love that. I, think, I wouldn't have had that. I love that. I mean, it's I, interesting that you said. I, I think it's, I'm sorry, it's, go ahead, it's so important that you guys both bring up a good point. It, it, you know, it does not have to be a long process, right? Sometimes you can get what you need in a few sessions, right? It's, I think mm-hmm. it's just important to know that it's there, right? To, to right. you know, and I think so many people may have a bad experience, the, you know, that first time that they try on a therapist, because I always say finding a That's good right. therapist is like finding a good pair of shoes. You need to try it on in the store, walk around a little bit, you know, see how it feels mm-hmm. before you, you know, make the purchase. And then, you know, you don't like it, you try out another one. But I know with, you know, the resources and, you know, the, the cost that sometimes is not realistic, right, for people to do. And so that yeah. initial experience, right? So I love when I'm someone's first because... I really, really cherish that, right? I really value that because even if they don't continue on with me, I do want their experience to be that they found they they got something out of it so that, you know, later on down the line, they'll go, you know what? I think I need a tune up. You know, I think I need to talk to someone just for all the reasons that Sia mentioned, you have this objective person who, you know, the outcome does not matter other than, you know, your client, your the person's happiness, right? And that right, satisfaction. Right. And then it's confidential, like legally confidential. Yeah. Your business isn't going to show up on social media, you know, such and such at the church isn't going to hear about it. You know, it's not going to affect if you need to ask somebody for money or, you know, they don't know anything, right? None of your and the judgment, the judgment, and the judgment is right. removed. That's huge. That's, yeah, that's, huge that's probably the biggest yeah. thing. Yeah, because you, you know, and I think see, you, you, you said this word shame, and that's just you know, shame mm. is a very debilitating emotion, right? Yes, it is. It's, it's the emotion that says I am something. I am weak. I am bad. I am. You know, and so that kind of makes us feel very labeled and it puts us in a box, right? Brene Brown says uh, shame is like the gremlins, right? Mm -hmm. I'm really dating myself. A lot of your listeners may not know. Put some water on it. (laughs) So the things that killed the gremlins were these little monsters. And if they ate after midnight, they could die, but also sunlight. Right. We kill them. And so Brene Brown says shame is like a gremlin. If you bring it to light, if you talk about it. Right. It goes away. Right. You know, Mm. I I, I, um, see it probably has heard me say, like, you know, bad mom one on one. When I do something, I'm like bad mom. I feel like such a bad mom. I used Mm. to hold that in. Right. Like, oh, my God, I'm such a bad mom. I got, oh, I got to bring the snacks. The snacks got to be perfect because last week I was late and everybody will talk about me. And, you know. And so when I get in, I feel shame, I get into this perfection, right? Mm. I, oh, I, oh, well, I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to work harder, right? And so we all kind of have this kind of shame box in, in these shame tapes, right? That can kind of play, mm. um, again, depending on things that you've went through in the past, right? And this fear of judgment. Yeah, but I think there's an important thing to kind of hit on with people of color and just what you said. And I was explaining it um, 
in my in my current occupation to someone because um, there's also um, when you become the first of something or you're the only mm-hmm. one, which we, a lot of the us as African Americans experience that we're the only one in the room uh, in, in in a group of people that don't don't look like us and are you know, we're just trying not to mess it up for the, the, the next person. This mm-hmm. is what I always say. I'm just trying to not mess it up for the next person. So then to your point, Amari, I become a perfectionist mm-hmm. at what I do. I work extra hard. I hit everything that I'm supposed to do and more, but I'm carrying the shame of all the stereotypes of every African-American mm. that I do not want to have to experience not getting the opportunity that I'm getting. Mm-hmm. So that shame I'm carrying, that doesn't even really belong to me, mm. but it belongs to historically this whole group of people I'm attached to, right? And my And I'm sure, and I can't speak for President Obama, but I'm sure in every African-American person who reaches a certain success level of any kind, you carry this because my friends will talk about it like, oh, I'm just not going to mess this up for the rest of black people. Mm. Right. And that is all associated with Mm -hmm. the shame that we attach to blackness. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And stereotypes. And that's trauma. That is trauma you are carrying right into your job. Why can't you just do your job? But I've got to be an A plus student. I've got to be at the top of my class. I've got to don't make a get a third degree. Mm I can't make a mistake. And I was trying to describe it when this um, Black, Life Ma- Life, Black Lives Matter and civil unrest, I'm going to call it, because I don't think it only encompasses uh, that, right. you know, because I think a lot of people were, like you said, sick of gaslighting, sick of a lot of things, right? That was coming out in this. But I think that for me, when I was asked about it, it was the first time I could describe to senior leadership that that is what it is like mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. They actually wanted right. to know what it was like for me to be who I am. And it is that it is doing it perfect. It is not messing it up. It is giving another opportunity to a person who looks like me since I'm the only one. Right. I, I don't want it to be that you say, oh, well, we gave that black person a chance, but that was the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. We can't ever do that mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think that all of that needs to be unpacked. And I also think that that's probably why I had to stay in therapy longer to work through, forget the relationship thing. That might've been the reason mm-hmm. I entered, mm-hmm. but I was unpacking all of this other stuff that I carry on a daily basis that we don't actually consciously think yes. about. And right. We're not thinking about that's, it. That's an excellent point is that usually what, what brings you to, you know, the symptom that brings you to uh, therapy is not often what is the issue or the cause or the real um, thing that needs unpacking, right? So I thought the thing that you you were saying a second ago, though, about shame, uh, it was very interesting. And, you know, what, what I was thinking while you guys were talking about shame, well, you know, one, I think that Sia's Point is very interesting, but I, I think that there's a difference between shame and feeling ashamed, mm. right? I think that I think that there's some value in feeling ashamed about something, right? Yeah. And it's a certain thing, a behavior, something you yeah, did, yeah, something yeah. you, you know. I mean, you that to me that's accountability and ownership sure, of your shit, sure. right? It's like you know, I'm I'm ashamed of of 
you know, if I scream on my kids for no reason because I'm on some some other something else, yeah. I, I feel a little ashamed yeah. about that. And I make sure that I, you know, I try and rectify it. So but but I think the shame issue, um, especially when it's shame, like Sia described, where it's not even yours. Right. right. Um you know, is, is a, is a whole nother level. And, you know, you bring up an excellent point and, and yes, some kind of consciousness. Yeah. That's totally appropriate. Right. I did something wrong. I yelled at my right. daughter. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to correct it. That's different than That's saying right. I am a bad father. Mm-hmm. I am a bad dad. Exactly. I yelled at my kid. I am a yeah. bad dad because you know, when you think about what you're saying and Cecilia's, you know, point when she talked about her friend having to kind of reprogram himself, right? And that's what it is. Right, of course. We have to reprogram the language mm-hmm. in which we talk to ourselves because it can be debilitating. Mm. You start to, that's how you're feeling. Yeah. And then, you know, that's the place that you're coming from. So, yeah. I I thought that was, it was funny too, when you were earlier, you were talking about, um, uh, you know, what we as parents ourselves, what we want to do, you know, we want to give our kids lives that they, that we didn't have. Uh, we want to give them things that we mm-hmm. didn't have. Um, I find it very funny because I, I, you know, I'm definitely, uh, definitely one of those. My kids have stuff that they probably shouldn't even right. have right. <laughs> just because, you know, we, I mean, we, we, you know, so there's really nothing that they've, you know, material probably don't want that they have. Um, but I will also say, I guess, to the other point is I find myself allowing certain conversations that when we were mm-hmm. kids, do it because I said you right. to do it, right? There's no, you know, we're not having a discussion. Like I be having these discussions <laughs> with my kids about shit that right. we should be, you know, is it they they fall into the category of just do it because I said yeah. to do it, and and, yeah. and but 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 at the same time I you know there's a lot of value to it too because I do find you know I do find validating you know giving them one it's a teaching mm-hmm. moment mm-hmm. because I I I want my girls especially you know these girls to have a voice to know how to stand up and give their mm-hmm. opinion to be able to debate a, an issue if they feel strongly mm-hmm. about it. You know, so all of these things that I could squash as mm-hmm. their dad, and then they not really have those skills and those things when they get out in the world. So I'm thinking about preparing them that way, but it's really funny to me. Cause sometimes I'm like, Hey, y'all don't understand. I ain't have none of these conversations with my parents. You know? I, I do think though, I think, I do think that there has to be a little balance because right. I do think that we are creating a generation that's very different. We the independent thought that we want to give it, give them because we've been shut up so many times by our parents, like get out of grown folks' business, go in your room. This is not, you know, like which should still to a certain yeah. degree still yes. be happening. Yes. You, yes. We've got to have and I think that some of us have gotten all over the in, we've given too much entitlement. We're too coddling. We're, we're because we are so traumatized maybe about having been cut off and not getting our words out. I do think with today's youth, we there has to be a balance because some of them are disrespectful and some of them are don't know when to be quiet. And some of them do get themselves in troubles with adults and people right. of authority because they think everything's up for debate. Not everything 
Not everything. You don't get to debate everything. Do you get to have a, a thought? Do you get to express yourself? Maybe, but you have to find the ways, the right ways to do that. And you also have to know when there's a limit, when you have to be yeah. quiet, yeah. right? Because if you don't learn that lesson, life is going to teach you that lesson in so many ways. Right. So I think like I, I know with my son for sure, and, and Amari knows this very up close and personal, he thinks that everything is up for debate or he thinks that he has a say about everything. Yes, or it's a negotiation. And I remember when my when he was very little, my mom would tell him, oh, you know, do you want to eat this or do you want to eat that or do you want to eat that? And he would make a decision about his dinner. And I told her one time, I said, mom, you used to tell me I get what I get and don't throw a fit. And if I didn't like vegetables, I had to stuff it in my mouth and go into or the bathroom, put it in the toilet or don't, don't eat, eat. <laughs> or go to bed. And, and and now my, yeah, now my son will go in there into my kitchen and be like, oh, there's nothing to eat. There's 10,000 yeah. things to eat. Right. But because he thinks he has a million billion choices, he thinks he doesn't have that get what you well, get and don't throw a fit type of mentality so there should have been a balance that i just well, it's funny missed. how the you know when they get to become when they, when they become grandparents you know i don't know if it's the second chance but you know things happen it's like wait wait where did that come from like you never allowed right it's, it's you know i don't know okay so i'm gonna there, there's just two more questions that we have because we, we, we're going to have to break this into two episodes, you know, because this is this is a really good conversation. We need to break but, it into eight um, episodes because we got a lot of people talking about. So why do you think that people are either not as sympathetic or sympathetic to Kanye West and his bipolar disorder? Um, uh, a because answers. <laughs> yeah, you I'm know, waiting on this one. The first is, you know... People don't really understand bipolar. They think they do, but they don't. You know, they they think it's, you know, mood swings. And so I think it, you know, it's it's used simultaneously with crazy. Oh, she bipolar or something. Because, you know, one minute she's this, one minute she's that. And so I think it's downplayed. And it's really unfortunate because um, it is very, as as we see, right, as, as Kanye announced, I don't know how many years ago it was um, that he... Uh, uh, said that he suffered from bipolar disorder and they they don't understand the manic right so bipolar disorder was manic depression back in the day and so that manic state that state of grandiosity right that state of high energy he probably didn't doesn't sleep very much in, in that state rapid speech all of these thoughts a lot of starting of projects and not finishing them right? It's just this manic state, right? And sometimes it can, it can be coupled with psychosis. And so when you see that, right, it's not, and it's so funny because people with this disorder thrive in some industries, right? They make great car salesmen, right? Because in this manic state, they can go and they, and they just sell cars, sell cars, sell cars and make their quota, and then when they get into the depressive state, you know, it's fine because they meet their quota. But, um, you know, and the entertainment industry. So I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is obviously his celebrity, right? And I think a lot of people uh, were really big fans of Kanye and his, mu his music and um, his talent. Um, 
And I think people feel disappointed in a lot of ways when they see this behavior. Um, and I, I think they don't want to understand it. And I think they forget, right? Because it was a few years ago where he rode an animal into a church, right? Like, why are we even, like, do we forget that, <laughs> right? And so, you know, I just think there's just not a lot of sympathy. Um, well, I also think that um, just, and I think that this is going to go into our sports episode as well, but I do think that uh, African-Americans, once they're put on a pedestal or once they reach a, a certain level of, of success, I think that people ex have an expectancy that they become some kind of um, uh, mm -hmm. role model or, or spokesperson, or they have to carry, you know, some weight with that, right? Because mm -hmm. they made it, right? They made it. And it becomes a blessing, right? Because they make money, they like it. Some of them have nar narcissism as well, right? A part of a narcissist um, personality as well. So you see them really thrive and like that. But at the same time, that weight yeah. is heavy, right? And they're still yes. human and they're still going to make mistakes and they're still going to have bipolar disorder or suffer from depression or or have the weight of, uh, especially with social media and everybody's opinions and trolling and like almost like they, they have to, dissect themselves yeah. from being human to be the celebrity, like they're separated from those, those two things. And I think that that's a tremendous amount of, of weight. Yeah. And we don't, we don't like to excuse behavior. We don't want to use mental health as an excuse for behavior, right? Oh, that, well, that's just an excuse. Well, you know, his political views can be his political views. He can be a Trump supporter, but his behavior around that is part of his illness, right? And I don't, you know, I do not treat Kanye West or anyone in his family, disclaimer. But from what I have read, you know, his mom was a, 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 a big part of him being stable mm -hmm. um, and, and making sure that, you know, he was, was uh, you know, taking his medication and, and treating himself. And, you know, right. I think that that was a great loss to him um, to doubt. not have his, his mom, you know, around to help regulate that. And I think, you know, with the, with the collective trauma that we're all experiencing, see a mentally ill, uh, un, you know, not stable, this level of, of trauma, this pandemic, pandemic, whatever you want to call it, hmm. um, is can exacerbate anything, right? Just the way mm -hmm. it can exacerbate someone's stress to where their high blood pressure goes up. It can exacerbate your your. Yeah, and his whole environment. I mean, you know, with the Kardashian clan and all of that, toxic. all that stuff. And and I'm glad we're having this. And Lucia laughs at me because we had a little bit of a discussion about uh, about this as we were adding <laughs> this to part of our our questions and our discussion here. And I was more on the side of. And you explained it very well. You explained me very well in, in your um, description just now, just about not not being forgiving about his behavior, you know, and how it seemed too much like 
like his behavior was around, um, you know, out and out, you know, I'm getting ready to drop a song. So let me go and do some wild ass shit and mm-hmm. say some wild ass shit. And I know I'm going right. to get, you know, I'm going to get 50 million views on this, which is going to promote my, you know, um, right. you know, and, and, you know, and, and just, you know, some of his stuff. And, but I do, I will say that I did notice, um, that it seemed like it, it was almost at the identical moment when he lost mm-hmm. his mom, that shit just went yes. off, the, off the rails, you know, because right. I mean, if, if he's had these, if he's had these things, he's had these things yeah. for long, long, long his time. His whole life probably. We've, yeah. yeah. We've even, yeah. known about it and we do know that she was a stability she was stability mm-hmm. for him we know that he she was the one person that he was not trying to disappoint and right. was not trying to you know not try he wasn't trying to you know make her cry make her sad make her you know he, he we we all is very clear on how he felt about his mother and then once she was gone the ro- there was no more ropes there was no. no more like no more you know like the consciousness sitting on his shoulder and he could just go, you know, mm-hmm. go, go wild with it. And so, um, so this is actually healthy because I know it's not just Kanye West that we're talking about in this context. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does, it does help me to have a little bit, uh, a little bit more, I guess, patience and understanding yeah. around these actions and some of these, you know, because I, I was really like, you know, Somebody need to go snatch his ass up off the street and and you know because because yeah. we you know we talked about in this whole conversation about how you know we're one of the only one of the only I would say communities of people that really are like one of us does some shit, all of us is base is you know has some responsibility for it, or mm-hmm. we're gonna be looked at in that in that way right by right. the you know the broader community you know oh i saw mm-hmm. this black person doing that all black people do this same way they use mm-hmm. us you know in other other places you know let's go get that one you know you see the news let's go get that one the most ignorant ridiculous one on this on the street let's interview that person to tell us mm-hmm. what happened mm-hmm. you're gonna use your job video right. and you're gonna get all you're gonna get all the, you know, I ain't got time for that. You're gonna get all of those, right? Um, yes. and that's it. And, you know, and then other people, especially, and this is, you know, this is a whole nother thing, but especially globally, right? I mean, everything is global now. So mm-hmm. people in China or people in certain parts of, you know, the world are looking at, mm-hmm. you know, black people. I wanna learn about black people. That's what they get. Yeah. And well, we to, and we have to deal. So I that I've been a little less patient and a little less understanding about some well, of that stuff. Jill, I, you I you hope me that so yes, I hope that after you know this this uh, conversation, you you it can help you to look at the function of the behavior, right? Because we can be a lot more forgiving with with teens and and youth, that's right. But we have to remember that you know some of us we didn't get treatment. Right. That's right. We didn't we That's didn't right. go to therapy. We didn't get help or we lost that major support in our lives that maybe provided mm. that. Right. And so yeah. um, there's always something underneath. So when I see Kanye, I just see someone who's hurting. Right. Yeah. Who's just got a lot of stuff. I mean, the way he spoke to his wife and about his wife, 
you know, he's just, he's all over the place. He's exacerbated yeah. right now. And so, yeah, spiraling. Um, yeah, he's spiraling. He's really spiraling. Well, and it's interesting because he's, you know, cats are really trying to, you know, Dave Chappelle, I think, went out and visited him. I know mm-hmm. Dame Dash has gone out and so he has people that are like trying to check on him and trying to kind of balance, Good. you know, balance because, some of summer. So I, know, I think that that's really that's really important. You mentioned his environment. You know, this this didn't just happen overnight. Right? right. And so with the exacerbation for me, it's like, you know, the company you keep and, you know, the people around him is, you know, that's why I'm very disappointed in. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually, you know, yeah. But I I think um, and I think there's so many things to unpack, even on on, on this this topic of, of, of Mr. West. But I did want to bring out just and I think we we did a good job of kind of hitting on a, a couple of things. But before we kind of get to uh, your services and where people can find you, um, the one other thing that I, you know, kind of want to bring out is um, is I think right now we mentioned that coronavirus is having a an effect. It's 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 really you know whatever was in a normal state is 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 probably being elevated. Uh, people are not being able to get away from just dist- or being distracted by mm-hmm. the outside world as much. Mm-hmm. They're having to deal with their own thoughts mm-hmm. and their own minds. And I, I would imagine that that if they had mental health issues. Uh, we're probably going to see a lot of them, you know, have breaks or other things that occur mm-hmm. in a time period where they're uh, they're with themselves a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of having to to work through whatever the thoughts are that occupy their mind. Um, but I think for people who are not um, actually, you know, the de- the depressed person. Um, just being in a relationship with somebody who suffered from mental illness was really difficult for me, somebody who didn't suffer from mental illness, how to process that, how to be the best support I could be, mm-hmm. what what could I do to make them feel better? Because you really, as a, a person that's dealing with somebody with mental health, you really don't know what to do a lot of the mm-hmm. times. And a lot of it does seem crazy or something does seem off or you want to blame people for what they cannot control, right? Or you feel the stress or the weight of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have any suggestions for people who either know somebody or can see the signs of people at this point, especially people who live alone, mm-hmm. right? Uh, where mental health issues might be coming out in this this period of time. Do you have any suggestions as to maybe some things that we can do to help to support people that are experiencing uh, this this pandemic in a, in a way that's very, um, you know, exacerbating their current state, right? And, and maybe some of these mental health things might be coming up. Yeah, you know, great question. And, you know, it, it's one that I think is, for me, is, is uh, evolving daily because this is uh, phenomenal for me. You know, I, I've never, I'm experiencing a trauma that along with my clients, right? So, you know, listen, I'm a therapist that has a therapist. You know, I see a therapist once a month. She gets me right to talk about all of my issues, all of the things that I need to just want to unpack and just really to have someone to listen with presence, not on their phone, not looking over here, not cooking dinner, not, you know, just with presence. 
Um, and so I think that, you know, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head, really just making sure that you have uh, an, an outlet and, and someone to, to talk to. Um, and, and to, because as a caretaker or anyone that has to um, be around or maybe is in a partnership with someone that's struggling with a, with a, um, a mental illness or an addiction, it is very difficult, right? Um, and even, you know, I know we're, we're getting into uh, the age where a lot of people are taking care of their parents um, now, right? And that is so difficult, right? That comes with its own set of, of pressures and traumas and um, stuff that maybe you didn't unpack with your parents before come up towards towards the end of life. And so, um, you know, I, I, I normally have a lot of suggestions, but most of them are not available to us right now. So, you know, the biggest thing that I can say right now is, you know, get some sunshine, you know, exercise, I think, is becoming more yes. uh, important than ever, right? Um, because, you know, 45 minutes worth of exercise is, is uh, we, we have a saying, 45 minutes Great of advice. exercise is, is just like popping a Prozac, right? It's so good yep. for, for releasing. And so if you can do some home workouts, if you can get, get some sweat, get your heart beating, get, you know, releasing of, of toxins because your body holds this, right? A lot of us are working from home. I, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sitting here grabbing my neck, you know, so if you can do that, I think um, getting out in the sunshine, getting out in the air, obviously practice social distancing and, you know, disclaim all of that. But I think that's really important. And, you know, a lot of uh, therapists are doing uh, telehealth my practice is entirely telehealth right now um, because of uh, the, the COVID-19. And so it really becomes an easier way, um, a more accessible way to, um, you know, receive some, some support. And so, you know, and, and I would advise against, you know, uh, Normally you come home from work, you may have a glass of wine, you have a beer. I would advise against that during this time. It's, it's really, really easy for, for those things to become problematic. Um, smoking cigarettes, all of these different things that we think are um, helping us are really not. Um, because this is a vascular disease. This is something that is moving through the body. They thought it was a respiratory disease. We can see it happening. You know, people are having strokes. People are having, you know, all of these different things um, if they have pre-existing conditions. And so what I really think is it's really time to really focus on your physical health um, in, in conjunction, you know, your body and, and just making sure that, that you're healthy, you're eating healthy, um, and you're looking at some of your um, relationships with yourself, your relationships with food, right? Your relationships with alcohol. It, it's okay. Doesn't mean you have a problem. It's okay to look at it. It's okay to, to, to take, you know, oh, that's enough right now. Maybe, maybe that that's, um, uh, maybe I need to just cut back. It's totally okay. Right. Um, and just the level of toxicity around you, right? So you're, you're stuck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in these relationships and really look at your friendships, really look at your support groups, you know, mm -hmm. really look and see, is that a positive two-way reciprocal relationship? Learn how to put some boundaries in those things. I'm not suggesting, 
you know, some of us have people in our families that are toxic, but we can't just, you know, end a relationship with our family. But I think this is really the, the time to put yourself first and to really be selfish. Those are really perfect. I mean, those are spot, spot on. I, I love that. And the one thing that I would, you know, as a non, um, you know, expert on this particular subject, I would, I would say one thing that's helped me is to literally unplug mm. um, mm-hmm. because everything is virtual, because we're in, you know, everything we've forced into a virtual world, right? So all our meetings are on Zoom, you know, I mean, everything is virtual. And so, you know, we went from, you know, I personally went from, you know, maybe, you know, all of kind of all of my digital, digital pieces was, you know, I, I'm addicted to CNN and MSNBC and all the news channels, you know, across the board. I'm addicted to, you know, those kind of things. I might watch, you know, too much of that. And I um, and then you have it on your phone yes. and you have it on. But with the fact that all of our interactions now um, or most of our interactions now are through in this kind of fashion, right, through mm-hmm. through these Zoom meetings and all these other things. Um, I've had to really do a lot of what you said. Yeah. I've done, I've probably done more, done more hikes, um, in the last, you know, last three or four months than I've done in the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. I've done more bike rides and more walks and more, you know, just, I, you know, luckily I can go and sit out on the deck and I, I take some of my meetings outside yes. just to not be sitting in my office 24 yes. seven. Um, but I think that, you know, I think that, you know, one thing that I've had to kind of self do for myself as part of my self care has been absolutely to unplug. Yes. Like I stopped watching so many of the George Floyd like yes. videos. I had to literally purposely intentionally mm-hmm. stop mm-hmm. looking at that stuff every five minutes yeah. because I was feeling like, you know, the level of rage, yes. and, you know, I deal with a constant kind of, you know, level of rage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. always, mm-hmm. but I was feeling it, feeling it heightened to a level that it was, you know, I could feel it like really affecting yeah. me. And so I had to like stop looking at social media, yes. shut down social media for a certain amount of time, stop looking at the news for a certain amount of time, go and play some Uno yes, with my kids yes. and like do stuff that like was not, you know, that was not in a digital space. Yes. And so I would just probably add to everything that you just said, the, you know, kind of the unplugging. Um, from all of this stuff that we have in front of us in order to. You know, that's excellent because, again, that vicarious trauma, right? I still remember the first time I saw Mm -hmm. someone shot on Channel 9 News. I do not watch the news. And if I do watch the news, it's the morning morning news, okay? You know, not the evening news. Not before you go to bed. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's what I mean, we're still dealing. We still still have Rodney King. Yes, if you cannot... If you cannot unplug all day, because I know some people say that they can't, if you can just change what you do the first thing that you wake up and and before you go to bed, right? So two hours before you go to bed, no screens, right? Shut it off. And then when you you wake up in the morning, give yourself an hour. Don't don't just reach for the, you know, uh, phone, Right. And get that dopamine rush and, you know, liking, because every time we're doing that, there's there's something happening in our brain. But if you can just maybe those two times for all of you who can't just unplug for a day or unplug for or from a long period of time, because I'm one of those. I I work in a job where I'm on call. So unplugging is not realistic, but I can 
you know, mm-hmm. eight and, and do, get some other some, yeah. in the morning and then make sure that before I go to bed and, you know, I know you have the ID channel and all of these things and investigation and, first oh, first yeah. and you know, and some, some people <laughs> not fall asleep without the TV and they, you know, and this, these things yeah. are playing over and over again while you're sleeping. Yeah. Right? In yeah. I had to tell mind. my mom stop watching that stuff. It's it's crazy. Yeah. It's and it's like addicting. I know, you know. So yeah. I, I get it, but you know, just before bed, you know, those things. Um, that's that's great advice. The unplugging is is yeah, one of the most easiest and functional things. So yeah. So one thing I do I I do want to add. I'm not a professional either, but what I do think we do need to do for our friends and family, especially at this moment is if you know that somebody lives alone or is by themselves, they, they, they feel isolated most likely, even if they have no mental illness issues. And I implore people to check on them to, you know, even if you drop something at somebody's door, you send them a letter, you call them, you, you know, zoom them, you, there's apps on the phone that you can, you you know, you can play little games with them. Mm -hmm. Anything you can do to make sure that people who are by themselves do not feel because I, I, when COVID was a full blown shutdown, I lived here by myself, Mm -hmm. right? There was no one else. My son was in college. Um, And yes, of course I work all day, but I, I was, I felt a profound sense of Mm -hmm. sadness as not the uncertainty of what was happening in the world and feeling so isolated in my home by Mm -hmm. myself. And, you know, I would take a walk every day, but it still wasn't enough for me to feel connected Mm -hmm. or it it was just a very weird sense. And I just think that sometimes people think I'm very introverted. So this type of scenario works good for my personality, but it still, I still had, I still felt that people, I wish people would notice or check mm-hmm. on me or just have a connection, even if it was a, a text, hey, I'm thinking about you. So I think for, for people, especially people you know who are suffering from mental illness or have some mental illness that they are controlling or managing, that you are checking in with them and that you don't forget that they're there yeah. during this period because there is no distraction. They cannot go out. Sure. I mean, other than walking, they cannot go to a restaurant or go watch a movie outside of the home. Everything they're doing is stuck in their home for yeah. months and months and months. You know, and, and it's just mm-hmm. a and, lot. And to that point, if you're, you know, because I, I started this process uh, alone as well. I don't have my son, but still pretty alone but if you if you're able to get you a pet if you're alone <laughs> you know if you're able to have some type of animal you know um that's always great too you can get you know i know there's a lot of pets looking for homes but if you can have at least that company and have a responsibility um to take care and it'll help you especially a dog you know i, I don't think i would have made it um, i had a few moments where i just you know couldn't deal with this but I don't think I could have made it if I didn't have to, you know, I had to go for a walk. I had to take my dog for a walk. I had to get up. Right. And then you have, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, Sia has a, has a little, as a little puppy, but the, you know, they, they, they can just help you through. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. 
Okay, so are there, this is the, the, the exiting question, I think. Um, are there less expensive or free services that are available for people for mental health if they're really struggling? Do you know of anything that you can suggest for our listeners um, if they're really struggling? Where could they get the services? And then obviously we want to know where people can find you. So great question. So, um, you know, there are a lot of therapy services that are offered on a sliding scale. A lot of therapists um, offer uh, sessions on a sliding scale, you know, depending on your ability to pay. Uh, I, I am one of those therapists. I'm not <clears throat> ever going to turn you away for your inability to pay. We will find something that works uh, for you. Um, the other thing is, is there is, you know, there's talk space now. There's a lot of um, web-based platforms that are coming up. I can't think of the other app um, that's available. Um, uh, Open Path is a really great resource. They are charging um, every therapist that is uh, a member of Open Path um, charges $40 a session. And so I just encourage people, you know, to think of your mental health the same way you would think of a gym membership. Right. And how much you would be willing to pay a month and what you can afford. Um, obviously, your insurances, there are a number of insurances that, that uh, you know, cover mental health sessions with a very minimal copay. And then also, if you're employed, there are what's called employee assistant programs that most corporations offer and a lot of times get really missed in the benefits. Um, and so. Those services, they usually can give you anywhere from five to, I've seen some uh, employee assistance programs all the way up to 10 sessions fully covered, uh, which is a great way not only to, to you know, get your feet wet and to get some, get some support, but also to um, help to find a therapist that you, you um, to like working with. And the other thing is, is when, you, when you're seeking, you can go to Psychology Today as well online. Um, but when you call your insurance, when you call and, and talk to your uh, human resources about your EAP program, you know, tell them what you want. You know, if you want a female, if you want uh, a therapist of color, if you want a therapist that specializes in a, a particular issue or within a certain age group or a certain religious background, whatever you feel that you need to be supported, um, you can, you know, to the best of their ability, see if you can find someone Um that uh, will do that. Other things too, a lot of therapists offer like some free consultations, um, which are which are helpful and really kind of dissecting and getting to, you know, a problem area and helping you to feel comfortable. So um, there is, you know, if you're feeling, you know, really bad and you're, you're feeling like you may hurt yourself, there is a suicide hotline um, that you can always mm -hmm. call uh, and, and get some support. Um, so there's a lot of different resources. Uh, and I know that there are not necessarily free, but there are some donation-based uh, programs as well in, throughout the city. So there's, there's um, and, you know, I know we were talking about the church, but some churches also have, uh, uh, you know, members of the clergy that are also, you know, licensed right. professionals as well. So... Um, mm -hmm. as for me, you can find me at amarisimslmft.com. 
you can uh, schedule an appointment online or you can give me a call. Again, everything is uh, virtual right now. Um, so I'm able to, you know, know where, no matter where you are, we're able to, to connect. I'm also on psychology today. And so I, I am America's yep. number one keep it real therapist, right? So you will get, yes. you know, reassurance and you will get my experience. You will get authenticity and you will get love. And I hope that, um, you know, everyone, uh, if, if there is a need, you know, can can give it a try, even if it's not with me. Right on. So we can't thank you enough for taking your, uh, you know, this podcast went two hours, so I know we're going to make it two sessions for the, for this one. But um, I think it's such an important topic. Um, I'm super uh, uh, happy that you decided to spend your evening with us and um, make sure that you're giving these great resources to people. I think um, mental health is so important, um, and I think that people need to really remove the shame mm -hmm. from, from, it doesn't mean anything is wrong with you because you need to talk to somebody. You do it with your family, friends, and everybody else. This, this is just an outlet, another outlet and another yes. tool in your toolbox for you to get better. And I think for me, um, life is all about seeking mm -hmm. betterment, right. And in trying to be the, my best mm -hmm. self. And part of that is also exercising my mind and, in my mental yes. state, right? And understanding my relationships with others and where I fit in the mm -hmm. world. And that that goes across so many different planes for me. So I, I, I think that this was super helpful. Um, this was and then Akil, I'm sure you have some parting words as this well, was right? This so um, much yeah, fun, guys. This was so much fun. And let me just say, you know, seeking therapy and 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 sitting in that, in that space is actually very powerful and it's a sense of strength and we did talk about generational trauma and how things are passed on and when you go and you sit in that chair you 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 change the trajectory of the generations to come after you you are really changing what happens in your family system will kill that shame it goes away yeah, no, I love it. And I, I thank you as well, obviously. Um, this has been, it's really incredible to meet you. Um, I would love to talk to you more and, and you know, and we would love to have you obviously back have on another back. session. Have but, back. Um, this was but so I, much fun. But I will tell you, um, you know, I, I, this was, this was, uh, this was a building uh, moment for me as well. And, and I just feel like there was, um, you know, there's a lot that we talked about. I think there's a lot more that we can talk about, but you know, the world is not a same place. No. You know, the world is a, is a, is an incredibly, um, you know, convoluted and just, it's, you know, it, it's, you know, I can't say any diagnosis, but it's, it's, it's yes. wild. And we're dealing with, you know, we're, we're dealing with assaults on our mental health from so many directions yeah all day, every day. And I think the one thing that, um, you know, for a huge takeaway for me, not only for my own, but, you know, as we talked about, all talked about our kids, you know, I'm always working to not only be a better person myself, but be a better father to my daughters and a better member of our community. And, um, 
And I find myself in positions where I mentor, you know, I mentor, I'm mentoring, you know, activists and I'm mentoring, you know, professionals mm-hmm. and I'm mentoring and just in my space, I, I mentor a lot of people. And, and sometimes that mentorship is almost like a counseling session, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes it's, you know, dealing with stuff that they're, or giving them advice on how to deal with certain relationships or how to move certain things forward yes. and, you know, those things. And so, um, so this is, this is, this is really wonderful. And, and uh, I thank you for your time and, and your energy really, because you, you made your energy is amazing. Oh, thank and, you so and, uh, much. I thank you guys so, so much. So, I had such a, a, an amazing time. And um, I'm so passionate. I can talk about this all day. So, <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you for inviting me. All right, cool. All right, bye. Thank you. What you going to? What you going to? What you What you going to? What's